Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, where is this? Hello, everyone. How's it going out there? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. Today on the program, my guest is Tracy Rose Payton, author of the debut novel entitled Night Wherever We Go. I think that was the thing I was interested in the most was, I think, especially with exploring the lives of I would say the six women, and even though, of course, I feel like they all have different, I think they have different stories and we hear from some of them more than others. But I think I was just interested in all the different variations of that experience. Motherhood, losing a child, being able to see your child, but not really be able to mother them the way you want to. Also just the relationships, marriages, or romantic relationships of any kind, like just the type of stresses that people were put under in terms of trying to stay together and how that affected your relationship with one another. Okay, that was Tracy Rose Payton and her debut novel, Night Wherever We Go, is available now from Echo Books. Night Wherever We Go is a novel about slavery. It takes place in the mid-19th century and specifically it's about a group of enslaved women in Texas who stage a kind of covert revolt against their owners. These women live and work on a struggling farm. It's not doing well. And the owners who are seeking to improve their fortunes decide to try to enforce pregnancy on the women so that they can have more slaves and more manpower, essentially. But these women have other ideas. Night Wherever We Go is an impressive and haunting debut that left me moved and agitated. And as you'll hear me say to Tracy, it's a book that really had me thinking in narrative terms as I was reading it, which, uh, which is to say I reacted so strongly to the plight of these characters 
and wanted so desperately for them to be able to escape their circumstances that I found myself as I was reading lost in a state of like hyper imagination. It's like trying to figure out alternate storylines and subplots or strategies so that these characters could escape this hellish system in which they were caught. And it's sort of interesting to me. I've been thinking about it a lot, both since I read the book and since I spoke with Tracy, because it's not the first time that this sort of thing has happened to me. And I feel like no matter what fiction you're reading, there's always some degree of this. You're always reacting imaginatively against the text. But what's of interest to me is how like narratives around slavery tend to deliver this effect like on steroids and I was trying it's almost intolerable to read about especially when it is written so well as it is here and as I was thinking about it it occurred to me that I I react similarly uh, similarly to holocaust narratives I cannot watch a movie about the holocaust or read a book about the holocaust without simultaneously imagining myself like somehow liberating Auschwitz (laughs) or doing something or someone doing something. Does anyone, you know, like the entire time that I'm reading, I'm just frantically thinking, how do we get these people out of this? And can't there be like one decent person, which there almost never is, you know, I mean, among the, uh, the Germans or you know what I mean? So, It's a very good novel. Again, it is called Night Wherever We Go by Tracy Rose Payton. My conversation with her is coming up in just a minute. The Other People podcast is offered freely. The entire archive of this program, more than 800 of these conversations and counting, all of it is available to listeners free of charge. There is no paywall by design. We all despise paywalls. We're sick of paywalls. We've got enough paywalls in our lives, and I'm not about to add another paywall. So you can access every single episode of this show without any obstruction. But what I'm counting on is I'm counting on regular listeners, people who really like the show, people who get something from it, or people who love literary culture and want to help perpetuate it, or just like really nice people who are generous and filthy rich. If that describes you, then perhaps you would consider supporting this show. You can do so for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other PPL pod. $1 a month. I've tried to make it as easy of a process as possible, as painless as possible. $1 in the hat every month to help keep this thing going. It is a sliding scale, so $1 a month, three, five, 10, 20, whatever you can afford. And as you move up the scale, you can get merchandise. You know how this works. So if you're listening and you like the show and you wanna help it survive, go to patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like other people merchandise, if you would like a t-shirt or a sweatshirt or even a onesie, for your child you can get that over at the show's official website just go to otherppl.com scroll down 
look for the t-shirt, you'll see it, click on it, and away you go. The t-shirts are great, by the way. They're soft, they fit well. Um, I'm not kidding, they're really good. I'm like, a, you know, you know how some t-shirts are bad and some t-shirts are good? These are good. If you would like to receive my once a week email newsletter, you can sign up for that at otherppl.com or my website, bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in both places. What the newsletter is, is it's essentially an enumerated list. It's links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting or finding funny or both, or you know what I'm saying? It's simple. It's, it's not that, uh, it's not like I'm going to bury you in emails. It's none of that. So if you would like to hear from me once a week in your inbox, just go to bradlisty.com or otherppl.com and sign up. It's free. If you would be so kind, I would appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It helps new listeners find the show. It helps the show in the algorithm. So if you have two minutes, just stop. If it's you know Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen, give the show a rating. If it's possible to write a review, type up a quick review, and uh, that'll be it. I would appreciate it. The Other People Podcast has its own YouTube channel. You can watch my conversation with Tracy Rose Payton over on the Other People YouTube channel. There's video now. So that's a relatively recent development. All you got to do is go over to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy. And when you arrive at the channel, just hit the subscribe button. It's free. You can also watch clips or highlights on social media, TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter. The handle on Twitter is at OtherPPL. The email address for this show is letters at OtherPPL.com. If you have something to say, if you want to offer some feedback, tell me a story, whatever it is, just uh, send me a letter or an email at letters at OtherPPL.com. Finally, I have a novel of my own out right now. It's available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. And I narrate the audiobook, if that's enticing to you. It is a work of autofiction. Did I say that? It's, you know, it's basically about my life, but with some changes. I don't even know how to talk about it anymore. It's a book. I wrote it. Perhaps you would like to read it. It's out there. It's your, it's your choice. It's up to you. So my guest once again is Tracy Rose Payton. Her debut novel is called Night Wherever We Go. It is available now from Echo. Tracy Rose Payton received her MFA down in Texas at the University of Texas at Austin, the Mishner Center for Writers. Her short fiction has appeared in Guernica, American Short Fiction, Prairie Schooner, and uh, the best American short stories of 2021, among other publications. I had such a good time meeting her and talking with her, and I'm excited to share the conversation with you right now. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is my talk with Tracy Rose Payton, and her debut novel, One More Time, is called Night Wherever We Go. It's a book called When and Where I Enter by uh, Paula Giddings. She's a social historian, and what she's basically writing is kind of a political history of black women. 
And in it, she's talking about different forms of resistance, like before she gets into like, you know, political organizing. And I think she kind of starts the book with Ida B. Wells, but she kind of then steps back and looks at slavery and she starts looking at different forms of resistance, whether that's kind of everyday resistance, which is some people kind of term as like, you know, kind of work sabotage or work slowdowns. And then she gets into what I think historians now call gynecological resistance, which is, you know, using herbal abortives to thwart their master's attempts to use their procreation to create more workers and more enslaved workers. And so in the book, she's citing, uh, there's another, I don't, (laughs) I could go down the rabbit hole of sources, but she basically starts talking, she uses, she talks about this anecdote where there was this farm in Tennessee where between four and five enslaved women were kept and they controlled the birth rate on their farm for like 20 years. In that time period, only two children were born. And at the end of it, I guess around maybe at the, you know, maybe around, maybe I would say around the 20 year mark, the master found out that there was an old woman who was giving the younger women an er- quote unquote an herbal remedy, basically an herbal abortive. And that episode is chronicled in a medical journal. And it's, and it ends up being something that a doctor at a doctor's conference kind of gives a, re- you know, gives a report on because he's trying to kind of tell other doctors what they should be aware of. And in that book, Herbert Government's The Black Family Under Slavery and Freedom, if anyone's interested. But in that book, what he chronicles are these basically battles that are happening between enslaved women and the people they own them and the doctors who are employed to kind of like mediate these things. And yeah, and it's just an interesting, it's an interesting terrain. I feel like that we haven't really kind of seen explored. Gynecological resistance. Mm-hmm. That's like that's a new term. I like that. <laughs> yeah, it becomes very relevant in these days, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And I think too, like about the historical record when it comes to slavery, and in the case of this book, female slavery in particular, I'm wondering from a research perspective, like how much is available? How much of the historical record from uh, like a, a slave-centered POV is preserved. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, like did they have access? Mm-hmm. They didn't have access to education oftentimes or probably like writing utensils or anything to like preserve what happened in most cases, I would imagine. Right. I think very fortunate for me, there are a number of Black women, I would say historians, who over the last, I would say maybe 30, 40 years that have kind of taken up really trying to look at women's lives in particular. And so they've done a lot of work in terms of like going through, I would say like stuff like the WPA narratives, I think are a big one, even though I know a lot of people have problems with those. Wait, what is that? What is that? Am I? Those were the um, the Writers Project. Remember the big Writers Project, like I think in the 50s, like after the depression, when writers were kind of like the government employed writers to do these different projects. And one of them was to go out and go down to the South and to interview older African-Americans who had grown up under slavery. And so by then, a lot of them who were interviewed, maybe they were like 70, 80, they were children. A lot of them, most of them were, to be honest, children when emancipation happened. So I feel like, so so those are all kind of lumped under what's called, I guess, the WPA narratives. And there's usually a set of narratives for every state. And so in that state, you'll have, basically, they will interview, they have interviewed like 50 African-Americans and you'll get lots of different detail about what people ate, you know, when's the last time they've seen their family, what they remember. And then the funny thing about that is that like, so the WPA did this research and then they kind of went into a vault and then they weren't kind of discovered until the 70s. <laughs> and so that's when like historians started using them and kind of using them as a, as a primary source. The other thing that people started to use recently as a primary source, which is fascinating, are pension records. And those are basically the pension records of like civil war widows who were, you know, who at this point, like, you know, your husband was in the war, you're trying to file for a pension. And because the records of who 
African Americans were married to because marriage under slavery was so tumultuous and people didn't really honor your marriage. There's no contract. There would be all these like detailed interviews to figure out who you were married to. What was the chain? You know, were you still married by the time the soldier passed away? And those become very also rich resources to understanding like how people lived under that period. And so you were, were you combing through some of this stuff? I was combing through some of that stuff because there was a period where I was going to do a kind of a longer kind of thread. And so and so, yes, yeah, so I was reading some of the pension records, but I was, again, I will put most of that, most of that <laughs> amazing research, I would say, comes from like historians like Tara Hunter and Brandy Brimmer. And then there's another book called Voices of Emancipation that pulls together a bunch of interviews from pension records. And those are amazing, too. Okay. So the the story that we referenced early uh, from Paula Giddings, this book, it, it, you know, it's a true story. It takes place in Tennessee, this gynecological resistance. Mm. And your novel is set in the 1850s, 1852, I believe, mm-hmm. and it takes place in Texas. Yeah. I'm curious about that choice. Like if you had this Paula Giddings thing happening in Tennessee and you yourself, I believe, were raised in Georgia, correct? Well, I'm from Chicago, but my, but my mom's people are from Georgia. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read somewhere that you were, you had Georgia, Georgia roots, yeah, but, I had I'm Georgia just, roots. <laughs> but you went to Texas for graduate school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm just trying to kind of follow the thread of how we wound up in Texas for this story. Yeah. That's a good question. I mean, I think here's the thing too. I think with having that original anecdote is that I actually don't know where that happened, right? It's in a Tennessee medical journal, but I don't know if the doctor, um, who tells that story at that particular conference is a doctor in Tennessee or is he a doctor in a neighboring state? Also the way the records are kept, he doesn't tell us what farm is from, at least in terms of like the record that we have of that particular incident. So it's one of these things where it's like, because the archive is what it is, there are, you know, there are always questions. There are always a lot of things that are left out. I think, especially in terms of like African-American history. But I would say how I got to Texas was originally, I think my first draft of the book was in Georgia because that's where I, you know, I would go as a kid and, would have a little bit of a relationship to like my mom's family's from a small town called Thomason. Um, and so those are kind of my memories of like the deep South, the railroad roads, you know, um, the land that my grandfather owned. But <laughs> when I moved to Texas for grad school, I got really inspired by Texas. It's one of the few places that still has a very strong regional identity that seven years of the Texas Republic still lives very large for them. I was going to say, people, people from Texas, they are very concerned with being from Texas. Like in ways, yes. like I'm from the Midwest and I could care less. I mean, you know, I, I love the Midwest, but like, calm down, Texas. We get it. <laughs> it's, it's so true. Yeah, they're whole, the whole, like, I feel like that ethos of like Texas as an independent nation for them is still very real. Um, like even the stuff we saw with the power grid, like they're, you know, them being the only state in the union that has their own grid, mainly because they didn't want to be told what to do. <laughs> so yeah, I think when I got there, I got very inspired by, by Texas just because I just, I can make sense of it, I think in a certain way. I think again, coming from Chicago and having lived in New York and DC, and I think I started thinking about the question of slavery in Texas and why we never think of slavery as connected to Texas, even though, granted, it, it happened later because of when Texas joins the Union. But the whole question of like how Texas becomes part of the Union, the Mexican-American War, what the, you know, what the state is of American empire and how far would the American empire go like past Texas, past you know, Central America, all of those questions that the nation was wrestling with in the 1840s, 1850s are all part of, you know, Texas is a big part of those questions. So it just seems strange that like we often leave that out of the dialogue. It's like it's like Texas, Cowboys, California, Gold Rush. <laughs> and that's kind of it. And so and the more I started researching, 
it just seemed like not only was that like an interesting omission in terms of like if you were enslaved in Texas, you know, and you want to escape to freedom, you're going to you know, you're going to run to Mexico. And I just felt like we hadn't really explored those stories. Yeah, I didn't realize that. That was one of yeah. the things I was going to ask you about, you know, like later in the conversation. But since you bring it up, there's a <laughs> there's a slave named Noah who takes off. Uh, I, guess, I mean, I hope I'm not spoiling too much, but takes off and goes south to a mm -hmm. place. God, what is it called again? It's called uh, Nacimiento oh, de los Negros. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This was a real place? That's a real place. That is a real place, and that was a place where there there were enslaved African Americans who who absconded from from Texas, from Oklahoma, yeah, from those particular states, and 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 that's where they would go, and and the border, and that's and, and the fights around the border lands are so interesting because the you know like the, all the different players, which I feel like someone who really knows Texas, I feel like I'm I'm waiting for that novel where it's like where you what you get on the borderlands where you have escaped escaped Africans who have banded with Native Americans, the Mexican government has said, hey, you all can have this land right here near the border if you stop white people from coming over here. <laughs> and then you have, at the same time, you have Mexicans who are under debt peonage, who are kind of, you know, going toward Texas, you know, leaving Mexico to escape their debt. And <laughs> Africans who are running toward Mexico. And then you have the Texas Rangers who are basically trying to, like, go into Mexico and bring the Africans back. Because you know they're hired, they're basically bounty hunters, basically, right? They're hired to bring them back. So like that history is wild, and I was like, that's an amazing adventure novel that I can't write, but <laughs> but I feel like I'm waiting on someone to write, you know, about Caballo yeah. Jack and some of these figures and all the things that are happening there because it's, it's it's a wild history. Wait, who's Caballo Jack? Do I Caballo Jack is like I think he's also I think there's another name for him too, but he's basically like basically a runaway a runaway slave or basically enslaved African who um who I think at some point just basically becomes like a pirate sort of, right? Kind of a pirate figure who basically has a band of, a band of like escaped, <laughs> escaped enslaved folks, Native Americans, and they all have kind of created this like, kind of just band of, 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 of men who are kind of living on the border, who are kind of like, and so it's like, yeah, it's, yeah, wild. I just feel like, I don't even know enough detail about it, but I feel like the little bit I've read about him, I'm like, this, this is, there's, this there's is a whole about. There's, there's a story to tell. Here. There's a story or a movie or something here. <laughs> so I'm curious too about Nacimientos de los Negros in terms of what is there now? Are there any remnants of this colony like in existence today or no? I don't know. I think my sources for that, were there were a couple of people who wrote some great dissertations about those different forms of migration that were happening before the Civil War. And I know that there are people who have done some like documentaries and research on basically the descendants of those communities, descendants of enslaved Africans who moved there. And so I've seen a little bit of that. I remember knowing someone who was doing some research on that, but that's but I haven't dug kind of more into kind of like what's the state? Does that town still exist? Has that town been morphed into another town? And I think other and I remember reading something in the WPA about an enslaved African American who had basically went to Mexico, kind of like Afghanistan to Mexico, made it there. He just basically waited out the war and then came back and like found his family. And so he ended up settling in Texas. So I wonder if there was also like a lot of that type of migration happening too. Some people who would settle and stay and this is home, but other people who were just like, I'm just going to wait till yeah. it's better. Yeah. <laughs> if right. there's a better, you know. What an interesting history. I didn't, I had no idea. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, 
a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I'm curious, too, when it comes to writing about this period and these people, what you had to do, because it it reads like in a lived in sort of way, you know, it reads authentically. And I'm curious about dialect, the logistics Mm. of plantation life. And one of the challenges, Mm. too, is that, and I think this is part of your concern creatively, is that plantation life is different from region to region and from time to time within the context of the history of slavery. It was not a static institution. It was fluid. It was regional. It, it was determined like the the life and the logistics were determined by what crops were being harvested. uh, You know, what was the moneymaker? And so I'm curious when it comes to uh, Texas slavery in particular, like what you did to zero in on the language of the time, the logistics of the time and place. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I would say probably boring things like, you know, read a lot of books about Texas (laughs) and, and I would, I would also say I tried to read a lot about small farmers in particular because I was interested in that distinction between being a small struggling farmer versus I think what the typical idea of a plantation owner is, which is, you know, Jefferson with Monticello and like these huge grand estates, you know, with a hundred people working, you know, the fields are in the background. And I feel like, and I, I feel like I need to have that statistic on hand, but most of the farmers were smaller farm, were small farms. Most of the, most slaveholders only owned maybe less than 10 people. So, you know, in that situation, you may not have quote unquote an overseer. You may be out there, you know, alongside your enslaved workforce working alongside them, which was an interesting class distinction between between slaveholders themselves, right? Like if you had to work <laughs> yourself and get dirt under your fingernails versus being able to sit on your horse and, and dictate what's happening or not. So yes, I was interested in those, I was interested in those class distinctions among white people as well, as well as the diversity to me among enslaved African-Americans, right? Where it's like, it is shaped by what region, what time period, 
if you have still connection to Africa or not, if you are, you know, second generation or third generation, what religion you practice. Yeah, there's just so many different factors. And I feel like a lot of times our depictions of enslaved African-Americans are typically kind of one note or kind of flat. And all that is kind of melded in this idea of like slavery is one experience. Like I initially didn't even want to have them work in cotton because I was just like, ah, I need to do rice or something. <laughs> I just need to like soybeans, you know, indigo soybeans. or something. Yes, something else or whatever. And so even though people are also, you know, working diversified crops anyway, like because just crop rotation, you have to. But unfortunately, part of the again, part of the lore of Texas or part of the yield of Texas was that it, you know, it's booming after the cotton boom in the 1830s. It's booming after industrialization. And so it is cotton. That is a thing that's kind of drawing people that's like um, that they're, you know, that they're going to make their fortune. Well, in cotton. I'll tell you this, um, reading this novel made me just acutely aware of the hell of a Texas summer doing hard labor outside, you know, like, geez, like the hell of all of this, you know what I'm saying? It's just so overwhelming. But I think the the elements and the backbreaking hard work that it takes to run a farm, you know, of any kind. And it, it, it's it's hard today, you know, even like in, in an industrialized sure. farming era. Uh, I have a friend who uh, was a farmer from like age 20 to just last year. And the reason he quit was because his body was giving out in his mid forties. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's like, I get up and I can't like, I can barely stand up that sort of stuff. So I think about this time and how much, you know, especially like in a resource deprived situation in a place that, you know, especially in the summer can be as uncomfortable, the bug, the bugs, Mm -hmm. the heat, the snakes, just like, Oh my God. Not fun, right? Like just awful, <laughs> awful. Yet. And so much of the labor, the worst of the labor obviously fell on the slaves. And the the story that you're telling here is centered on female slaves who were not spared mm-hmm. from hard labor in any respect, right? For sure. Yeah, I think that's the thing I think is interesting about our, even our, I would say as Americans, our quote unquote frontier myth, right? It's like, um, I think at some point I was reading... Um, Stuart O'Neill's prayer for, is it prayer for dying? It's basically supposed to be, uh, I think it's post-Civil War, I think a Union soldier, and he moves to like, I think it's, I don't, I think it's, is it what's, I know it's inspired by like Wisconsin death trip, and it's kind of like, but he's in a frontier, kind of like Midwestern city that like, the city comes down with, let me say town, more town, that, and a town comes down with diphtheria. And I think it's inspired by Wisconsin death trip, which like, which was that weird photographic book about frontier Americans who were basically moved to the frontier and it was so brutal that they were just like drinking side eye because they were just like I can't <laughs> like what the fuck did we sorry can I curse can I, you can curse yeah yeah sorry they were just like what did we do <laughs> right um and so yeah they were just kind of like yeah almost like committing suicide because it was just too much in terms of you know just the elements and the hell of like trying to trying to build a town out of nothing well yeah it's funny because I can be I've in the past many times have idealized the frontier in that like dances with wolves kind of way where you're just like, <laughs> right. you're living this pure existence out on this beautiful <laughs> landscape. And it's like, whatever, you know, like the winter comes and it's not so cute anymore. And not only that, but like, wh- where are you getting your food and what kind of shelter mm-hmm. do you have? And the pests and bugs and all of it without infrastructure is that's not an easy life. Yeah. And I would say, I think that was interesting to Interesting too, I think when I, in some of the research, I think I would read letters. Uh, there's a collection of letters from, um, I think a planter who moved from Georgia and he 
you know, set up in Texas. And you can see the shift in idealism, right? The first letters are, oh my God, it's amazing. It's just wheat. There's just buffalo just roaming just for the taking. And it's like, and he, you know, and he's just, and like the language is almost like he describes it as if it's Eden or something, right? It's like, it's this, you know, it's this like beloved, rich, plentiful land. He's telling his, you know, his relatives, oh, just come out, come out. It's going to be amazing. And then a couple of years ago, like that first freeze hits and then another freeze hits, you know, and then, you know, then the summer comes and everything dies off the crop. And like, it's just, it's just, and then the locust hit and then his, 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 you know, youngest child dies. And it's just like, you just see like inch by inch how like it all just like, none of it pans out. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I think so often that's like, that's, that's the interesting part of that story. I feel like we often <laughs> don't want to uh, explore. Well, but you're right about like, like a lot of times the narratives that we are told or the narratives that we tell ourselves about this period is pretty one note. There's the, there's the slaves and then there's the bad plantation owners and the slaves are kind of treated as like a monolith. And one of the things I loved about your novel is the fact that like the slaves don't all get along. (laughs) Right. Like they don't all like each other. It's like, they're all just like singing in the fields in harmony or something. (laughs) Like these are complex human beings who have different agendas, different temperaments, different ways of coping with the trauma and stresses of life in this place. Like, you know, it's one of these things where like, once you stop and think about it, you're like, I think people would actually be more inclined. Well, I guess, I don't know. Sometimes when you're in a shared trauma, it can bond you obviously in in a really deep Mm -hmm. way. But I also think that like when you're under that much pressure, it could create divisions and conflicts and really moody behavior. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for sure i think both are true yeah i think both are true and i think i wanted to explore that tension of it um it's yeah we don't like each other and we may not like each other all the time um and other in other times that is gonna you know forge a bond because there's something bigger than us that we have to kind of contend with but other times also be, again because of the stress of situation it also is just gonna make me hate you more <laughs> because also, because we have to live on top of each other in this way, like you know, we have to work together. We're I, there's there's no break from you. <laughs> well, yeah, the, 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 there's know? competition too. Um, there's competition because mm-hmm. it's like who's going to be the house? Like, there's different roles on the plantation or the farm. Mm-hmm. It's like who's the house slave? Who's the who's working in the fields and doing the physical labor? And does somebody who works indoors have like some sort of advantage over the others? And you know, I could see how the there could be even a hierarchy happening, in you know, for them and how that could lead to tension. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And even some of those things, I think I was trying to kind of, I would say play within the novel too, because I do think there is like a notion in, I would say contemporary um, American consciousness about, you know, quote unquote, the house slave versus the field slave. But I don't necessarily believe that distinction was as clear. I was just saying the research I've done and I'm sure, you know, I'll allow historians to, you know, correct me, but I feel like I've seen it where, especially if you're working on a small farm, some of those, some of those notions are, are, um, are fluid. You know, where it's like, you know, so again, it's one thing if you're on a estate with 100 people, then you could have very designated roles about, you know, these people are the artisans and the blacksmiths and these people are whatever. But if it's a small farm, you have to get in where you fit in. And that could mean that someone who is primarily doing housework or is also maybe sometimes out in the field as well. But I think more interesting, I think the thing I was interested in was, I think often there's a notion that the house slave, quote unquote, or the house enslaved African-American had it better. And I don't necessarily buy that. It could be 
better in the sense that it's protection from the elements, but you are closer. <laughs> you live closer to the owners. You are, you have no privacy. You are always under surveillance. You are always at the hand and beck and call of the slaveholder. Well, and, well, and it's also the, the female slaves in particular are doing cooking, childcare, mm-hmm. wet nursing. <laughs> All of it. You know, all of it. Like that's not glamorous work. That's like it's not, that's backbreaking yeah. work. And it's uh and like you say, you're right there under the thumb of the boss all the time. Mm-hmm. So this all the I'd time. rather twenty four hours. I'd rather be out in the field. <laughs> yeah, twenty four hours. I mean, at least I would say in the situation of the field, you do have when the day is done, you may have a couple of hours to yourself, maybe, depending upon, you know, your living situation. But you know, but twenty four hours a day where you're net right next to somebody who is expected. <laughs> You know, you just, you know, to serve their every whim, like, yeah, I, I feel like people idealize that. And it's, it's, it, I don't think that was better. <laughs> I think they were both, both, both hard. <laughs> no doubt. And in the story that you're telling, just so listeners uh, can be oriented, the farm is owned by a couple named, was it Charles and Lizzie Harlow? Mm-hmm. Charles and mm-hmm. Lizzie Harlow. So this is a struggling farm in Texas. Lizzie is from Georgia, or are they both from Georgia? I know Lizzie has family back in Georgia. Yeah, Lizzie's from Georgia. And she's kind of along for the ride. Charles is out seeking his quote unquote fortune, but it's not really happening. Mm-hmm. And so in this story, in the struggle to survive, in Charles and Lizzie's struggle to survive, they they hatch a plan to essentially breed. Mm-hmm. That's a crude way of putting it, but that's really how that's, that, yeah. that's what they were thinking. We're going to breed our slaves and create more slaves and it's going to enrich us. And the six female slaves on this farm at the core of this story are resisting that the gynecological resistance that we started out by talking, we started out <laughs> yes. talking about. And, you know, I guess like Toni Morrison, uh, beloved, you know, mm-hmm. that book is about this and but it just, it, this book really brought into focus for me, like the awful risks and costs of childbearing, of friendship, like just friendship when you're a slave, yeah. any kind of intimacy, romantic love, uh, you know, you, you, you have a child as, a, as an enslaved woman in 19th century America or 18th century America, and they just take the child, se- mm-hmm. sell the child. Bring the child indoors to play with the kid while you're out in the field. You never see him again, really. You know, like horrendous, yeah. horrendous. Like no wonder that they didn't didn't want to bear children. You know, the mm-hmm. costs are just too high. And likewise, like just becoming close as a friend because all of a sudden they ship your friend off or kill your friend. You know, like that stuff happened mm-hmm. all the time, and just painful to read about and to think about the burdens borne by women in particular. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, I think. I think that was the thing I was interested in the most was, I think, especially with exploring the lives of, I would say, the six women. And even though, of course, I feel like they all have different, I think they have different stories and we hear from some of them more than others. But I think I was just interested in all the different variations of that experience, Uh, motherhood, losing a child, being able to see your child, but not really be able to mother them the way you want to. I think with Junie, we see like her children a long distance and her relationship with Lizzie <laughs> uh, for her is squarely trying to find out if her children are okay. Also just the relationships, the marriages or 
romantic relationships of any kind, like just the type of stresses that people um, were put under um, in terms of trying to stay together and how that affected your relationship with one another. Yeah, I just felt like there was so much that I wanted to explore with just like really looking at the interior lives and the private lives of enslaved African-Americans that I just felt like I hadn't seen. I think too, like just 19th century pregnancy period, like no matter who was carrying a child in that heat, like third trimester, I'm just like, oh my God. (laughs) And then, (laughs) and then like childbirth, you know, giving birth in like a room with like people, you know, I mean, or just like squatting and having a baby in the field, you know. Boy, as somebody, I've witnessed a couple of births. So, I mean, it's like, that's, to me, that's a, a medical event. <laughs> you know, like, I guess it's very natural. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm too far removed from my roots, but like, I was very happy to be at Cedar sinai <laughs> with, with some help, you know, like I am not one of these people who's like, just get in the tub. It'll be fine. You know, like, like I want a team of doctors, like, but it really, you know, it really brought that to bear. I think of uh, Sarah. Is that the way to pronounce it, Sarah? Uh, it's just Sarah. Yeah. Just oh, Sarah. Sarah. Okay. Yeah, just Sarah. Uh, mm-hmm. But Sarah's story in particular, you know, and her ordeal with that, and how like the farm owners, slave owners would like even physically beat and abuse pregnant slaves, like just mm-hmm. awful behavior. Mm-hmm. And yet, in this novel, and to your credit, I think. There is dimensionality given to the Harlows, mm-hmm. who are called the, Lu- the the enslaved women on the farm call them the Lucys, which is short for Lucifer, <laughs> <laughs> which I quite liked. Uh, that felt like the kind of thing people would do, right? You for have sure. to you got to code name some people, but the Lucys or the Harlows are human beings mm-hmm. in these pages instead of just like boogie men or boogie women. Like they're awful, but they're human. Yeah. And I think too, like some of the costs of white supremacy and racism are drawn into this book. You can see how it impact it impacts them negatively, for sure, as well as the slaves, for sure. And I thought that was like a a good creative choice. Like so many, like again, the one note nature of these narratives, as they are imagined or told, a lot of times. That is done away with here. You know, everybody here in this book is uh, round and fully human. Mm-hmm. And I felt for, in particular, I felt for Lizzie, mm-hmm. you know, having all these kids and having a husband who's kind of checked out and she's stuck on this farm in Texas. Like I had like a, a twinge of sympathy for her. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, kudos to you for making me feel that because it was not easy, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I've heard people say that before. They're like, ah, I felt something and I didn't want to feel anything about her. <laughs> right, right, right. But, uh, you know, I, like, I think too, like, and maybe this is because I'm a white guy reading this, but when I read slave, uh, slavery narratives, all a, a lot of times what I'm thinking is like, where is the, there's got to be somebody on this fucking farm who's like, this is wrong. We got to, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Like, where is the, there's never like a moral epiphany among these people. Like, it just seems so, uh, it seems so crazy to me. And I want to have a dialogue about this because maybe I'm wondering if like you stumbled upon anything in your Mm. research that Mm. might shed light on this, but Mm. the awfulness of slavery is not subtle. Right. No. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, this is not something that's like sort of like shades of gray. Like maybe it's okay. No, it's like, it's just so obviously awful on a human level that like, 
you know, you watch a movie like 12 Years a Slave, for example, mm -hmm. makes you like physically ill. Right. And yet this institution persisted in the American South for generations, mm -hmm. decades, you know, centuries, whatever. And everybody was sort of on board with it. White people were sort of on board with it. And the ones who weren't, I guess, were ostracized or jailed or, mm -hmm. I mean, there might've been legal costs for them. I don't know the history well enough to know, yeah. but like, I have to believe there was somebody out there who had a reaction to this and was like, you know what, maybe we ought to rethink this. And I'm sure there were, maybe their stories have been told. I don't think they were in the majority. <laughs> and the other thing that I think about is a line from, I believe, uh, what's the guy who wrote Upton Sinclair? Mm. It's this famous like line of his that I'm going to botch where basically he's saying that if a person is making their living from a certain industry or in a certain way, they will convince themselves of its moral rectitude or rightness, mm, yeah. no matter the costs. No matter. If that's how they, that's how they make their bread. And so like, as I'm sitting here wrestling with like, how could people be on board with this? The only thing I can come up with is just like, A, they're just wrongheaded and sociopathic and evil. But I, I think that's, I got to believe that's maybe the minority. I think a lot of times people just go along with how things are and don't really think about it or they're making their money from it. And so they just convince themselves that it must be right. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah. I, I guess everybody wonders like, how the fuck did this happen? And yeah. yet it happened and it has happened in other places too. You know, it's just human awfulness. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I would say that I was kind of interested in that psychology, but I didn't want to make them cartoons. I thought the book would be less to make them cartoons. I think it was too e it'd be too easy to just make them kind of cartoonish villains, right? And I am interested in the psychology of it. You know, I think I, you know, there are a couple of journals by kind of slaveholding mistresses, and they're fascinating pieces of <laughs> of literature. But like twisted too, right? Like yeah, kind of yeah. I mean, yeah, some of them are very twisted. Where um, by that I mean like I think. I could kind of grab it if you want to know which one, but there's like, it's one, I think it's uh, a plantation mistress on the eve of the civil war. And it's the journals of, I have to get the book to remember who her name is. Yeah. And, but you could see her fighting with the tension, but the tension is not that owning other people is abhorrent, even though she's a very devout Christian. <laughs> her, her issues are that she doesn't know why the people that she quote unquote claims to own hate her. And why they treat her that way or why, you know, a lot of it's like, it's not that it's about control. Like, she's just like, they're insolent and they're this and they're, you know what I mean? And, 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 and her prayers to God are often like, I can't wait, God, rid us of these people. It's like, you did this. <laughs> <laughs> you were still doing this. Yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I think the psychology is fascinating. It's like, yeah. And some of them, I think some of the things I definitely, I think were inspired by her. I definitely gave to Lizzie, like these kind of notions of like, that they are cross, that like, you know, these are crosses to bear. For her right like dealing with these folks or crosses to bear it's like you could literally just free them today you don't have to you don't have to see them yeah, that's a question i have historically i should know this better but like mm -hmm. could somebody in texas in 1852 have just freed his slaves and said you're free go uh i have to look again technically a man probably definitely could a, i mean women definitely had and there's a great book on stephanie jones rogers they were her property on white women's role so like where i think a lot of times there's this question of like where people where sometimes people will kind of see and it was just like well you know a lot of the wives were just along for the ride no a lot of them own property a lot of them 
had their dowries that were in in enslaved people like so they they were you know they were the people who were negotiating wet nurses and like renting wet nurses so like they were very involved involved <laughs> well i mean just the, the the notion that you give a slave as a wedding gift oh yeah for sure mm-hmm. Ugh, mm-hmm. You know. and that and that when someone died that was when there was so much anxiety among uh enslaved african americans because at that point they know that who is going to be dispersed like who's going to be given away in the will oh, right. to other relatives uh, was often like a thing. So like sometimes I think if someone died, there would be people would just start running or just like runaways because, you know, they knew like it's just like you don't know how it's going to fall, you know, whether that's going to be debt collection or again, which cousins, which cousin you, were you left to in the will and were your children also left to that person? Like it's just, yeah, insane. Well, the the story that you're telling here and the the treatment and abuse that these people endured had me... If I'm being totally honest, as I was reading, I was conducting an alternative, like I was desperate to save them, (laughs) (laughs) which you often are when you're reading about people who are like innocent people, like in peril, you know, it's natural, I think, to want to be like, how do we get them, you know? So I kept thinking in my head, I was like, I was imagining like if if I was a farmer in Texas, I would, I would create like a a situation where they had owner, like they, they owned the land too, and we could have a collective and we would get along. <laughs> I was actually like thinking like, how could you, but I, then I guess you could just say you're free. If that was an option, you just free them. Mm-hmm. But I was trying to imagine like how to res- like co-resist and create a haven because I was just like, it's hard to stomach kind of witnessing what's going on. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. So yeah. anyway, kudos to you for rendering it realistically, <laughs> making making me squirm. <laughs> I mean, you could free them. They would probably have to leave Texas, though. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And then how do they get there and all this stuff? Yeah. It's just, yeah. you know, it's so it's so it's not that long ago either, really, in the no. in the arc of history that this was going mm-hmm. on, and it's just depressing as hell to contemplate that this is where things were not too long ago, and. There are people today who would probably be just fine if it were to revert, you know? And Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I th- yeah. And I feel like there's so many, I don't want to say parallels, and by that I don't mean like direct parallels, but I just mean some of the some of the things around psychology, around that period, around, around class and working white class and like, you know, and the other people who maybe quote unquote didn't participate, but not because they didn't want to, but just because they didn't have enough money to own other people, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't get in on the game. Couldn't get in on the game, right? And that, yeah. right? And that, and that, a lot of the ways, um, I think Emmett Morgan writes about this, but a lot of the ways that they would kind of like, you know, get working class farmers on board, or you know, poor farmers especially, or or, or poor men who own land but maybe didn't own slaves and had to rent slaves, quote unquote. You know, the way they got them on board, which is a, the same way I think what we've seen with Trump, right? The way they get them on board is to say, oh, but the, all this could be yours. All this should be yours, right? This this dream is possible for you too. You just have to. <laughs> buy buy some buy some Trump water, and right? A, uh, and a Trump vi- coin and some vitamins. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I feel like the psychology of some of those things are still very much with us, you know. So it's it's interesting, yeah. That well, it it lingers. I mean, you've spent time in the South. I my, my family, my parents are from Louisiana. I never, uh, I didn't grow up there. I grew up in Wisconsin and Indiana, but I've been down there a bunch, and like. I feel like it's very much still in the South. Mm. And I feel like the some of the resentments 
have lingered. Do you know what I'm saying? Like post-Civil War defeat, mm-hmm. resentments, the South shall rise again, yeah, that sort of stuff. For you sure. Know? Like, <laughs> that is alive. Like that is alive. And Texas, you know, mm-hmm. like Texas is going to come back or something like that. And I, that to me is offensively dumb. It's like, no, we should be like, okay, that was a nightmare and we're glad it's over. And But yet they want to like somehow resurrect some past greatness that was never great. It's crazy. So I want to talk to you as well, because, you know, we've talked about the dimensionality that you've given to the female slaves in this story and to even the Harlows or the Lucy's who are the slave owners. But something else that your book does that I had not seen before done this well, is it, it, brings into focus issues around masculinity mm. and the way that male slaves were reduced to stockmen or just breeders. Mm. Like they were literally hired out to just come impregnate women. Uh, that is a brutal existence. And I think Zeke, the stockman in the book, mm. is married mm-hmm in love with a woman, has children, doesn't want to really be doing this, but is just resigned to his job. Mm. That's the way he read to me on the page, at least to some degree, Mm. you know? So the women are obviously resentful of him and want nothing to do with him. And he's in a tough place because if he doesn't do his job, he's going to get beaten or killed and won't be able to see his wife and kids. Mm. And I mean, what a hellish role. He's got to leave his family and go do this, you know, just completely inhuman. So that side of masculinity, like like male slaves having to sort of, you know, deal with that kind of abuse and treatment. And then there were also two other characters in the book, and I'm going to, I got to think of their names. It's Isaac and Monroe. Mm-hmm. And I felt like you explored masculinity really well in their characters because Monroe, you know, both of them are essentially tasked with impregnating. That's the story here, right? We've got to breed and grow our slave population to keep the farm alive. And they come at their task in different ways. And I think the character of Isaac in particular moved me because he's a, he's a decent guy mm-hmm. and a spiritual guy and a family guy. He's got a wife, right? Mm-hmm. Am I remembering mm-hmm. that correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I just remember he's kind of quiet and decent and the way that it happens on the farm, which is I'm assuming the way that it happened all the time in the American South, was that they would marry you off. Mm-hmm. You know, they would say, Okay, you you two are going to couple, be basically like an arranged marriage or an arranged coupling, and you were essentially commanded to procreate. And so from a logistical perspective, what does that mean? Well, there's maybe a little bit, uh, there's like a tiny cabin, like a falling down cabin. And they just essentially stick you in there and there's a single bed, Mm. which, you know, that was a detail that sort of haunted me when it Mm. came to um, Sarah and Monroe, where she's in love with another guy. And then suddenly she's put into this arranged relationship and there's just this one single mattress and the guy is not so, he's not so great. It's kind of creepy. (laughs) It's an awful situation. But I just thought that like the way that you gave Zeke and Monroe and Isaac, each their own agenda and personality and background made me understand more deeply what the guys were going through when it came to 
in particular procreation and sexuality and relationships because you know the burdens were theirs to bear too yeah for sure there's an interesting area of research that historians are kind of looking into now which is thinking about how men were sexually abused under slavery and some of that is you know in the form kind of in terms of what we see with Zeke but also, you know, just, you know, rape of men, rape of children, like that, those were things that were also... But 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 also forcing men to essentially rape women. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like that's a fucked women, up thing to sure. do to somebody yep. who doesn't want to, you know, if the guy's on board with it, then it's right. doubly fucked up. But if it's like the guy's like, I don't want to do this, but I, you have a mm-hmm. gun in your hand and you're pointing it at me, like, what is a guy going to do? You know, like it, that's not an easy situation. Yeah. So yep. it's just... Uh, horrendous and yeah not something that i've seen talked about a lot or written about a lot yeah and i think the i think the other thing too i was interested in was like if if you read any like i would say some of the accounts of this and then in the narratives i would see i think misunderstand misunderstand these men right there'll be an account of a man who was tasked with doing this and you know, and in the and in the account, he's quote unquote bragging, right? He's like, "Oh, you know, I had so many kids, and I did all this, da da da." And I don't buy that account. This is the thing. What I think, I think, does a uh, what Cynthia Hartman talks about that we have to like read against the grain of the archive what? that we can't. Who, who talks about this? Uh, there's a historian, uh, Sadia Hartman. She wrote a book, book called Scenes of Subjection. She's amazing. All of us are writing in her wake. <laughs> but one of the things that she says, I think, especially for African Americans, when you are using these sources and sources that are not necessarily that don't render black people as human or don't believe black people to be human that you have to kind of read against the grain of the source right so the source is telling you one thing on his face but you kind of have to read against it you have to kind of read in between the lines of it you have to kind of engage it with questions and not necessarily take what it says at face value that makes sense though that makes sense because i mean a, you don't know what the agenda is or what pressures what pressures are being brought to bear on this person, but you also don't, I mean, it's almost impossible to imagine the psychological impacts of that level of trauma For sure. and how it would impact memory and a person's sense of self. And then there comes into play like the lack of education often and, uh, you know, the resources that a person would need to even begin to cope in a serious way with going through something like that. So- that makes sense, you know, that you would have to try to find ways to connect dots or read between the lines uh, to get to the truth. It's also, I feel like, just like the human nature that if someone, you know, sticks a mic in your face, like in a quote unquote WPA interview and asks you about an experience who you don't know, right? What you say to that person depends on how you want to render that experience for them. It has nothing to do with how you feel about it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's often about, I feel like, you know, the shield that you put up to protect yourself from something like really dark and horrific that you don't want to necessarily let the stranger into. And so, yeah, so I just, yeah, I I think it was reading about those experiences. I was like, ah, there's another thing here. And I just want to explore that. Like, let's, let's, let's look at what that was like for them as well. You know, as I sit here listening to you and thinking about all this, it really does strike me. Like, I'm wondering about, you know how, like when you read a novel and it activates your imagination and you might start telling yourself like a story of your own on a parallel line or even inserting mm. inserting yourself into the story. Like I can't think of a book that I've read in recent memory that had me doing this to this degree. I was like frantically imagining escape routes and like, <laughs> like you know, 
Do you know what I'm saying? Like you, you must, I feel like this must be the common for uh, any decent reader. Like you read a story like this and you're like, okay, all right, well, steal a horse. Just take a fucking horse and ride. <laughs> like, just go. <laughs> yeah, like, I would be like, I would stockpile water. Like, you got to stockpile water and food. Like, I was just constantly imagining, like, I would save up money. I would buy a farm. I would buy as many slaves as I could. And then, like, we would form a commune, you know? <laughs> like, I just wonder if there is any truth to the notion that narratives like this are more generative. Like, I'm curious about that experience as a reader. Mm. Like usually you're just kind of taking in the story, but these kinds of narratives for me, like activate me where I'm like, it almost creates a sense of panic or something where you're trying, <laughs> trying to get in and like rectify it. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, that's, I find that interesting. I wonder if there are like, I need to pay more attention to myself, but you know, I don't know. Is that square? Does that square with your experience? Do you do that or no? Uh, I don't know. And I haven't, and I, I will say I've just started talking to people who like, I think have like, you know, fully read the book since it's only been out since January. And I will say no one else has said that yet. So I don't know. <laughs> well, well <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm just a weirdo. But something else I kept thinking of, especially since we have this uh, this woman, slave woman on the on the farm named Nan, who mm. I like I categorized, categorized her to myself as a witch. Mm, interesting. Like, like yeah. she's witchy. Like she's kind of she like- She's a little witchiness. She's too. an herbalist, but she's like mm-hmm. can talk to plants and stuff. Like she's got some supernatural abilities. <laughs> But she's spiritual and she's got some deep wisdom. You know, I, I liked her as a character and she works in the house, um, but she is the one who is supplying all the women with cotton root, I believe, is the mm-hmm. um, abortive herb or whatever that helps to keep them from getting pregnant. And what I kept thinking was like, poison them. Poison them. <laughs> like, what if you just took them out and then just kind of like kept up the farm but like didn't have to work as hard but like had you know like you wonder how if that ever happened on a remote farm Mm -hmm. i guess they had you know they have these patrols in place like the logistics of how they maintained the institution of slavery Mm -hmm. and kept slaves from running away for the most part you know that part of it was interesting to me as well and uh, Maybe I want to say like Mr. Lucy or Charles, no, yeah, Charles Harlow, mm-hmm. the farm owner, because he was in debt, would have to work patrol. Is that right? Yeah, I have that. I'm, to be honest, I'm not exactly sure if that's how that would work. To be honest, oh, okay. <laughs> like I think, yeah, it made but, sense um, to but, me. Made but sense I did to have, me. but I did have that kind of happening because I, I just, um, I imagine that the patrol typically is made up of men who, most of us probably volunteer, but like. You know, men who are, you know, affluent don't want to be out there every day. Sure, they want to be out there for fun, you know, occasionally because they did find it fun. <laughs> but um, but yeah, part of that was just me kind of playing with the class elements. Like if there's like a level of dues kind of required to pay the men who aren't. Yeah. But I, c- I could also imagine in a agricultural community like you would find in the mid 19th century in Texas or wherever in the South mm-hmm. that you have all these plantations and farms on these big plots of land and neighbors aren't living close. Yeah. And they're all participating in this, in human trafficking and uh, the slave economy that they might have some sort of cooperation oh, for sure. ar- arrangement where it's like, okay, I'll do patrol on Tuesdays or you know, whatever. For and sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. but like, I don't know, like that's another part of it that I hadn't really pondered is like how to, how to maintain it. And, and, 
they must have been, and this sort of pleases me, but these slave owners must have been freaked out. They must have lived in a lot of fear. Oh yeah, they're freaked out all the time. All the time. Um, all the time. Um, and I don't, I feel like I try to explore some of that with the kind of hysteria that happens, but those hysterias and panics happened every, all the time, like every couple of years there was always. So the question of like, you know, you were saying that was there, you know, a farm where people just kind of like quietly, <laughs> you know, killed the owners and kept living for sure. I mean, I feel like there were all types of arrangements and there were always, you know, something of, you know, someone got murdered or someone, you know, someone slit their master's throat and, and the town would go crazy because, you know, part of it is to keep other people from doing that or to keep word of that quiet so that no one knows that that's possible. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, and so, <laughs> Wait, this is an option? <laughs> this is an option, right? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that's what's interesting, what you see in the narratives all the time is like that that there was always a level of panic and hysteria and fear that at any point this person was going to slit your throat or this person was going to put ground glass in your food. And I feel like, again, we don't really... I feel like that's often not the thought. I think if you think of like, you know, gone with the wind or, you know, any of those things where people are just happy and just like, no, this was, this was always rebellion. It was always fraught. It was always tension. And sometimes that's a very kind of like a loud tension. Like this person's going to slip my throat. And sometimes it's also just smaller tensions, just overwork. Like I think one of my favorite anecdotes is like, I think it's one of Henry Winsick's, he's a historian, one of his books. And he talks about some of the battles that were happening, I think on George Washington's farm (laughs) and how, you know, it's something like just as basic as like, okay, every, you know, every winter we need to shear the sheep and make the, make the coats for everyone on the farm, right? Both enslaved people and, and the um, people in the house and the white people. And, and so they would make this dictation to, this, to the enslaved people who were working as seamstresses. Okay, so when you, you know, cut the wool up, you can, you know, use the good wool <laughs> for the white people and then use the, like, you know, the bad, dirty wool for, 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 the, um, for the coats for, for y'all. And they would never do it. <laughs> like that, that the dirty wool would just always go missing. <laughs> it was just, you know what I mean? So it's, it were always these kind of tensions of over like work and like resources or people stealing food or just anything. Like I feel like everything was always in flux or fraught or yeah, in play in a certain kind of way. Um, it's interesting. It's such a moral, a catastrophic moral failure, you know, to not, to not have recognition of that. And, you know, it's worth saying, like, like I, it's like, I tend to see things in, I always call it the gray zone, like any human conflict, political issue. I'm always like, well, wait, like, let's, like, I get confused easily and I'll parse and everything, but like, this one's easy. Yeah. And there were lots of people who knew. It's not like everybody was confused. Lots of people knew. And then there were people who didn't. And the people who didn't or refused to know, that's a, that's a terrible failure. (laughs) Like you just, you know, like it's, uh, it's hard to accept that human beings can be that fucked up. And yet here we are. So (laughs) thanks for reminding me. (laughs) And I feel like to your point, if, I mean, and maybe it's helpful to know this, you know, if you did start the commune, you know, yeah. in Texas. I mean, you, to be honest, you probably would have run out of, you would have been killed and run out of town. You would have been tired and feathered, which is kind of what happened during the hysteria on the, you know, on the eve of the civil war, like the men who were, you know, pastors and so but no, forth. I, I planned were... for this. I planned for this. There yeah. was a scene, there was a scene <laughs> you haven't seen? when the You're evil, ready? the evil white like neighbors came to like tar and feather me and to like yeah. run me out of town. Mm-hmm. And I, I was able to talk sense to them. I, I somehow oh. got, I changed them. Yes, you, you changed them. They, they killed pastors, but you, however, 
the power of my moral logic overwhelmed them. <laughs> oh my I mean, God. I feel like Charles Sumner is somebody we don't talk about enough. Like um, he was like the senator in the 1850s who like South Carolina. Made, or, yeah, yeah. And so he makes this he makes this um, declaration on the on the on the floor of Congress where he's basically like you know where he basically invokes the rape of black women and he's like you know this is the moral imperative. This is how dark whatever. And he like really kind of goes goes at it. He is caned. <laughs> He is like beat with a cane on the floor uh, of the Senate. On, on the floor of the Senate, right? I um, remember this by uh, I want to say was it from a, a senator from Kentucky or something? Or I'm trying to remember from I don't remember exactly which from which state that senator was from. So that senator is disciplined, thrown out of thrown out of the Senate. That man is lauded. People send him canes, <laughs> like right, right. But but no, he he beat Charles Sumner so severely that I think Charles Sumner was like brain damaged, right? It was like yeah, he, he was yeah, he was crippled. Like I think he he was, he was I think he he started for a little while longer, but the recovery like he didn't never really recover fully recover from that. Yeah, no. he like beat him yeah. severely. Yeah, and that and like on the, so there you go, and like mm-hmm. you know as you're and telling that man came and that man was re the, the man who beat him was reelected and came back to office after he was thrown out. And you know this is the kind of history that we need to remember and it makes me think of the attacks on our like history and our educational system that are happening currently from the sure. american right wing this uh desire to erase african american yes. history in particular this era in our history to either pervert it and turn it upside down or just not talk about it at all like we need to remember like yeah. this was some, like you had a senator beat nearly to death with a cane because he had the audacity to suggest that raping slave women was a you know an immoral act. Yeah. So anyway, I guess that's yeah. a separate podcast, but I feel <laughs> but I feel on a related note, I feel that writing novels like this mm-hmm. is an important act. Telling stories like this, like like act, like works of the imagination that seek to humanize and give dimension to the lives that were led and erased or forgotten about or never heard from, you know, uh, that's important. It would help me, you know what I'm saying? Because you can read a history and that's helpful and a useful thing to do, but to really get, uh, like a a human sense of day-to-day life and the emotional activity of these lives, it takes a a novelist, I think, Mm -hmm. you know? So, it sounds like you've read so much history in your research. I'm wondering if you studied history in college or something. Is this something that you like took on formally or is it solely in service of writing fiction? It's yeah, it's solely in service of writing <laughs> writing oh. fiction. Um I feel like I pretend to be an amateur historian, I guess. <laughs> in you my fooled life. me. I was like, wow. She got this on lock. But I I uh I'm wondering if you in future projects as you envision them or imagine yourself, uh, you know, down the line writing, is this your milieu? Like, are you going to continue to write historical novels? Are you really focused on this period? There are obviously lots of different stories to tell, but is this like, is this your, your focus or are you going to do other stuff? To be honest, I don't know. I mean, um, I feel like I've written some short fiction. That's kind of, I would say both contemporary and historical and 
I don't find I'm that interested in writing about the contemporary moment. <laughs> like, I don't want to write about text messages. I just. <laughs> okay. Can I say something real quick? Because I am sure. right. I'm writing a memoir right now that it, I cannot get to escape text messaging. It, <laughs> it takes place during the pandemic. So, I mean, if that's all you did was text with people. And here is something as a writer, as an issue that like I actually worry about. Mm-hmm. is I cannot stand, this is very tedious, by the way. I'm just going to flag this up. <laughs> I cannot stand the intrusion of a sans serif font <laughs> on the page as the depiction of a text message. It just cheapens it. It's like, this is a book. Like, And so in my manuscript, I refuse to, I will not use, I use italics to signify a digital communication. But <laughs> It is an issue. It is an issue because you have to, I mean, if you're going to write about contemporary life, you can't escape like those kinds of exchanges. I feel like even the the stories I can remember that are kind of contemporary are like, I don't remember any text messages in them or, or, or I think I tried to place them around 2003 or something. something. Well, listen, I've had conversations with writers on this show who write like a period piece that takes place in like the early nineties. (laughs) and the question is always like well what was it like you know there were still pay phones it must have been such a joy to not have to deal with digital communication in a novel and you know i think people i just actually flagged an article this week in my newsletter there's this article in slate about the loneliness of people you know there's always it feels like this is something that is echoed constantly but it's like people are like social bonds are breaking down and people are isolated and lonely which i think is true and this author is positing that like we just need to hang out more. Like no agenda. <laughs> like you want to just come over and hang out and like you just sit in a room together. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to you could just watch TV together, but just like be in a room together for a while. Like stay, you know. Like I'm going to go to bed, but uh you know, you can hang out, you know. I kind of I was like, yeah, like I want to hang out more. Nobody ever invites me to hang out, but I think maybe back in those days even though people were still lonely and isolated in many respects, there was more hanging out, right? Oh, for sure. For sure. I think also I'm still interested in the, you know how people, I think there are a lot of people who talk about movies where the central like miscommunication of the plot now, of course, would be solved by a text message or a cell phone. <laughs> right. right. And like, I'm so interested in those. And it's not even that I'm trying to romantic, romanticize like just earlier periods. I think now it's just, I think in this, in this current moment, I just think like we're just kind of drowning in words in such a way in terms of like, you know, social media and like all the hot takes and, and, and I don't know if I have perspective on the current moment, but I think, I feel like I can write about the nineties or, or the, or even periods I didn't live through and think about it as like isn't there something interesting to say here or something to explore here? And I think I just haven't figured that out about the contemporary moment. It's harder to, maybe harder to draw it into focus because it's all happening and it's so noisy. It's so noisy to be alive. It's so noisy, for sure. You Um, know, I don't understand how people keep up with the culture just as one. I mean, like you have like the political culture and the political news media, which is batshit crazy. And it's so underserving. I'm I'm talking about television media in particular, Mm -hmm. but something I've been doing for a while now is I only watch BBC News, which isn't perfect, but it is strikingly different, like strikingly different. It has a global perspective. You're like finding out what's going on in say like the Nigerian election or in Syria with this earthquake, which is like one of these news stories that like I also cannot, I can't tolerate it. Like I can't Mm. even watch like that footage sometimes because it's so upsetting, but I don't know. It just, it's like, wow, you watch BBC News, uh, World News America, and then you turn on like, 
CNN. And it's like, oh, like America's so it's crawled so far up its own ass. All it does, <laughs> they just mirror back these like tabloid, these like storylines to the population in some sort of quest for ratings. I don't think it serves the public at all. Again, we're on a different <laughs> podcast, <laughs> but you know, I guess it's all of a piece in a certain sense, like trying to make like the world and the country better, which a narrative like this causes one to think about, you know, uh, I want to know about a little bit about your history as a writer like how you came up. Uh, you said you're from Chicago. Is this something you always wanted to do? Yeah, it, I, I would say it was. I think I was one of those annoying people who was like at 11, like, I want to be a writer. <laughs> what, what Was there something you read? Was there somebody you like glommed onto as a kid that really inspired you? I feel like I was, I feel like, unfortunately, I'm not one of those people who can say, I was definitely a reader as whatever, as, you know, always a reader and a reader as a young kid. But I, but sometimes I feel ashamed because I'm not one of those people who's like, you know, I was reading, you know, you know, Me <laughs> Wuthering too. Heights when I was 10 yeah. <laughs> or Middle March no. at nine. Like I'm Sm- not that person. <laughs> Smoking a pipe in the attic, my turtle <laughs> in my turtleneck when I was 12 yes. reading. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's the exception and not the rule. I think <laughs> I'll, I'll, I think writers often mythologize themselves in that respect, you know. Most of us were just kids. Like I was a kid. I didn't know anything. Uh, but you went on to Howard University. Mm-hmm. And what did you study there? I'm wondering. Like, was it? I studied Mer- film at Howard, yeah. Oh, you did? Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so do you have film and TV aspirations? Uh, I'm working in film now. Kind of a long road back, really. So I kind of, I studied film. I was working as an editor in TV for a little bit. And then was working in advertising for a long time doing the whole big agency thing in New York and then kind of went to grad school and then kind of kind of went to grad school or went to grad school. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes exactly went to grad school that's interesting I kind of went to grad school too I which, went to grad school. that actually yeah. is maybe a more, more accurate description of it than went to grad school <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and then kind of uh, serendipitously uh, ended up back in film so that's kind of what I'm doing in LA. What is what can I ask? I mean, what is it? Are you editing? No, I'm um I'm working in development. And so all of the thinking I have been doing over the years about trying to figure out like how to write fiction or how to tell stories kind of now is kind of used in this way. We're trying to figure out like, you know, working with filmmakers and trying to figure out if a script is working or not and like what they could do to kind of make it ready or closer to being kind of ready to shoot or looking for stories that are things we might want to adapt. Oh, that's so cool. That's, yeah. So that's kind of been fun. It's like, uh, it's, it's a, it's a job I would not have thought about until I got offered this opportunity, but I feel like it's definitely everything I've been thinking about for the last five or 10 years. <laughs> well, good for you. Good for you. And so it was Howard and then advertising New York city. You said you lived in DC mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what was happening there? More advertising? No, Howard's a DC. So I was there and then I think I stayed for a couple of years and that's when I was kind of working at like post-production houses and other like small production companies Got uh, it. for a few years and then moved to New York to try to like, quote unquote, <laughs> make it as an editor <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. But uh, yeah, those jobs are very hard to get. <laughs> um, yeah. And we're very- Is that, Did advertising, was that like a soul crusher or did you like it? call it a soul crusher but i feel like people often call it the golden handcuffs <laughs> right um because right. if you stay in it long enough the money can get good and even when you start the money's not bad actually um so i feel like i knew a lot of 
strangely enough, I worked with a lot of people who wanted to be filmmakers and advertising and they were and not necessarily on the creative side. They weren't necessarily like writing copy or making commercials. They were, we were all like doing project management or, <laughs> or some other kind of like. Sort of like how journalists often have like a novelist and a novel in the drawer. <laughs> for sure. Right. For sure. Yeah. Um, but then you leave New York and you go to get your MFA in Texas mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at the, what, University of Texas Missioner program. the Missioner Center. Program. Mm-hmm. So, and that was good. That was great. That was great. I know there's a lot of conversation about, you know, MFA programs to MFA or not, or PLC, whether people of color should do them or whether they're, you know, in good environments for writers of color. There's a lot of conversation about that. But I would, I would say for me, it was a great, I think, one, I think I was older. So it meant I was not so to me, it was kind of like the time, like it was like the gift of time, like someone, for someone to say, okay, here's three years and we're going to pay you to just work and write and read. Yeah. We're good. <laughs> say, say no say more. Say less. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, but I think like, I think like really like the, the point is whether or not the program is funded. Yeah. Yep. That's the big thing. I mean, if anybody came to me and said, I'm thinking of getting my MFA in poetry or fiction. And I, the first thing I would say is, is it funded? And if they said yes, I'd say go. And if they said no, I'd say don't go. <laughs> yeah, agreed. That that's a scam, you know. Agreed. And I like I always viewed my MFA as uh, a shelter. It was like I was hiding out and being able to concentrate on my work and learn how to do it. Yeah. And also to find myself in a community of people who were similarly nerdy and interested in this weird kind of nichey thing. That was a that was a nice aspect of it, because otherwise you're just sort of like floating on your own unless you're like really active at community building and going to readings and I wasn't tuned in in that way so that was the first time I'd ever been around other people who were interested in books the way that I was yeah no I get that I think I was around other people I would say in New York I was doing a lot of the you know evening workshops uh like you know second and I forget what the what the, like I did CUNY's Writer Institute I would do stuff at the new school um just all the like there's a lot of stuff in New York to like right you know, take a class here and there. And um, so I was doing a lot of that stuff and belonging to, there's a paragraph workspace, which is what a lot of writers use to, because no one has space to write in your house in New York. <laughs> so you rent a space to go like work. Uh-huh. Um, and so I was, I think I was plugged into all of that stuff, but I still just felt like I wasn't getting enough traction on the book the way I wanted to. And so this book was born for you when you were still in New York. Yeah, I was writing it then. I had a draft there. So I wrote a draft there. The good people at Sackett, the lovely Heather, Amy O'Neill, who had read, I don't know, two earlier drafts of this thing, I think when I was in New York, which are vastly different than what it's become. But but yeah, so I think I was, so I was doing that, went to like a week-long workshop and had a writer kind of give me some great feedback. And he was basically like, and I think at the time that draft of the novel I was kind of scared of all the like real hard stuff in it, to be honest. Like, so I think I had written all this stuff in the background. Like I didn't really want to deal with the rape. I didn't really want to deal with forced partnership. I didn't really, whatever. Um, so all that was kind of in the background and we talked and he, um, he had read the first, first few chapters and he said, okay, well tell me what your book is about. And I did. He said, okay, I wouldn't have known that's what your book was about based on these chapters. And I was like, ah, <laughs> this is the most common thing. <laughs> Why we all do it? It's, yes. I feel like we all do it. It's like the the thing that the thing is about that's really emotionally hard. We will write entire drafts avoiding it. <laughs> for sure, for yeah. sure. And then as yeah. soon as as soon as you go there, then suddenly the book works and readers are interested. Yeah, yeah. So so yeah. So that was 
that was like a that was to be honest a life changing experience. That was when I was like, okay, I need to go to grad school. I need I just need I need time and I need to figure out. And also, the, I will say also here's the other thing too is that like the level of research in the book, it's hard to do that level of research as an independent researcher uh, when you're not connected to a university when you are just like using. No, you're on New York Public Library and the libraries that are in New York are great, but you can't get access to like the real, real stuff until you are connected to a university and you can get access to all the JSTOR, you can get access to all the opaque, obscure books that like are not in circulation. Like that's the stuff that you need that until you're connected to a university, you just don't have access to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it wasn't until like, so when I, so basically when I went to grad school and I just threw out the old draft of the novel and started over. Um, Did you finish this book at Texas? Yeah. Or and rather, that, I would say afterward, I, I was in Texas still. I think the program was over and it was like the pandemic. And so I was just finishing it then, but yeah. And you got an agent as a result of being at Texas? Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm, yes, I met my agent through through the program. Um, he was the agent of one of my professors. <laughs> well, that's um, the way it works. And and then <laughs> you went out with the, man, well, like with the manuscript and what was the sales process like? like uh, uh, I went out, I think we went out in the fall of 2020. Um, I think that's right. Twenty no, or maybe twenty twenty one. I don't understand time anymore. No, me neither. <laughs> I was I was on. By the way, I never doubted anything you were saying. I was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I think it sold pretty quickly. I think we had a preempt by Echo Echo Harper Collins, and then I worked with my editor maybe a year and a half. Like I think we did two rounds, and then that's kind of the book. And then it came out this January. So exciting. Is it everything you dreamed of? It's interesting. I mean, it's great, but I think no one tells you how um, unnerving I think publishing is. <laughs> it's a weird, it, it's, it's a weird experience. I think the thing that everybody comes to eventually is that the best part of, of it is the writing itself. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, and that's not to say that publishing isn't great. It's lovely to have your book out into the world. That is what you, you're trying to communicate with people. But the highest highs are when you're working on the book and it's going well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like yeah. that creative process is what really is enriching. And then publishing is, uh, it's so strange because the book goes out into the world and you, sometimes you hear, but most of the time you don't hear anything. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, like all of that. And then it's just out there somewhere, hopefully touching a few people here and there, but unless it's like one of these books that, you know, just explodes, but there's like four of those a year, you know? Right. And so <laughs> totally. everybody else is just sort of like wondering, but I don't know. I think like where I land eventually is that even if it is just hitting a few people or a few hundred people or a few thousand people, it connects in a deep way, you know, like a book like this really works on you and makes you see. <laughs> and I don't know, I loved it. And I thought that like putting it down, I was very, like glad that I'd read it and grateful that you'd written it, you know, it's deep work. So kudos to you for doing it. And I always ask people if they're, if they've got anything else in the pipeline, it's okay if you don't, but is there another book (laughs) happening? Are you going to, are you just enjoying this one? I'm going to say, thank you for saying that. I'm going to say right now, no, not really. Like I think, especially because I think this book took me so long, like, and I'm not a person who has a huge amount of ideas. Like, I feel like I have friends, and you probably have friends like this, I don't know, or or you might be one of these kind of people who I envy who have like, they have like two notebooks full of ideas and they're just trying to figure out which ones they're going to get to in their lifetime. I am not that person. Listen, I thought about this this morning. 
where I was like, I don't think I can do a book unless it is like a huge personal thing for me. Mm. It has to be really bothering me in order for me to sustain the energy necessary to write a book. It's what, such a marathon. The people who I envy are these people who are like, oh, it's just a fun story. Like I just like have this great idea. It's just so much fun to be inside these characters. Like, no, it's got to be like, it's got to be like a crisis for me. You know, <laughs> like I have to have like be having a spiritual like crisis in order to muster the energy to write a book. Like I wish I'm going to try, I think after I finish this memoir, I'm going to try to write something. I'm going to try to entertain. <laughs> I just want to see if I can do it, you know, because my books are always like griefy and personal and this next one, it's just going to be like, I don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be entertaining. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, I think it's, but I think there's also different kinds of writers, right? It might just be that this is the kind of writer that I am, you know, you, and then there's writers who just like, who are activated by the fun of it or something. <laughs> I don't know who these monsters are, but <laughs> you know. Some of them are also just faster. Like those are the people I feel like who also like churn out a book every year and a half, you know? Yeah. But it's like, you know, it takes all kinds. And I have read wonderful books that were written in a, in a rush by people who are super fast. And then I just had a conversation. My last guest on this show, um, wrote this wonderful novel, Brotherless Night, that took 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so, and thank God, like you read the book and it, you don't care how long it took really, you know, mm -hmm. but you're glad if it's, if it's great, you're glad it's done. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? So you get to enjoy the fruits of that labor, regardless of the timeline. And, you know, look, look at some of uh, the writers who are like considered canonical. A lot of them only really wrote one great book. Mm -hmm. or they only publish like three or four books in their lifetime. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah, for sure. It's quality and not quantity. It's what I'm trying to tell you, Tracy. So <laughs> you take your time, find out whatever that next thing is, and I will look forward to reading it when it happens. Um, congratulations. Night Wherever We Go. Interesting title. I mean, I get it, right? It's like on a certain level, I get it that these like slaves are, you know, it's never a bright day really for them living under this system. But there's also a lot of like, like a lot of the freedom that they experience, whatever snatches of freedom they're able to grab happen at night. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a lovely title. Did that come to you early or late? That came late. That came late. Um, that was more, uh, yeah, that came late. I would say my original title was uh, Too Quiet. <laughs> it was called Too Quiet? No, my original title actually was This this Quiet. And I think my editors and my agent was like, I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, I think... Uh, I think it's this, you picked the right one. I think I, <laughs> uh, but thanks so much for taking the time to talk. Congrats again and best of luck on uh, all that you have going. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Okay, you guys, there we have it. That was my conversation with Tracy Rose Payton, author of the debut novel, Night, Wherever We Go. It is available now from Echo. You can find Tracy on the internet. Her website is tracyrosepayton.com. She's on Twitter. Her handle there is at trosepayton, and I believe she's also on Instagram. Once again, her book is called Night Wherever We Go. Go get your copy right now. It is out there. If you would like to support this show, if you had a good time, if you enjoyed this experience, you can support the show for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Support the show. Help me continue to create these shows 
patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like some merchandise, a t-shirt, a sweatshirt, or a onesie, go to otherppl.com, scroll down, look for the t-shirt. If you would like to receive my once-a-week email newsletter, you can sign up at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter at both sites. If you have a minute and you would be so kind, I would appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It helps the show find new listeners. If you would like to watch the show, just go to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL, find the Other People YouTube channel, and when you get there, hit the subscribe button. It's free. You can also watch highlights on the show's social media feeds. The Other People podcast has a presence on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. The Twitter handle is at Other PPL. If you have something to say, if you would like to offer feedback or tell me a story, the email address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. Finally, if you would like to read my novel, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is out there waiting for you in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So I'll be back next week with another episode. I'm not entirely sure quite yet who the guest is going to be, so I'm going to have to leave you on the edge of your seat. But it will be good. I've got some good ones in the pipeline, so stay tuned.